we are not professing to tell you the complete story of these activities. We are professing to tell you the complete story that we know. These records that we've uncovered don't tell the story. This is CIA files. They tell pieces of it. True stories of U.S. intelligence. Today is the first episode in a three-part series on CIA directors who shaped U.S. policy on Russia. Today we cover William Casey. The next two will cover Robert Gates and John Brennan. Uh, These people are from the 80s to present day. I want to focus on modern policy to help us identify how we actually got to where we are today with Russia. I also have a very special guest. Rebecca Masharowski. She's an American nurse working as a medic near the front lines in Ukraine. I'll be asking her some questions later. So let's begin. William Casey. William Casey is quite a unique case for a CIA officer and director from the Cold War period. Though his appointment as director was referred to as the return of Wild Bill Donovan, it was an odd case and that he showed no signs of being an abuser of drugs and alcohol. His addiction was his work, and he almost died at his desk. So how does a hard-working, sober family man end up director of the CIA from 1981 to 1987 and one of the most influential in setting policy towards the Soviet Union. Connections. Of course, connections. But he was experienced. Though growing up during the Great Depression, he came from a wealthy Catholic family. He studied political science and law. His claim to fame as a lawyer was coming up with what we would today call the tax shelter. The New Deal wasn't going to pay for itself, so He did well advising clients on how to make sure they weren't the ones paying. During World War II, he worked for the Office of Strategic Services, the precursor to the CIA. He helped organize Jedburgh teams. These were teams made up of three Allied soldiers who were dropped behind enemy lines where they helped coordinate partisans, much like today's special forces. He's personally credited with using priests as a way to communicate with and supply Italian partisans. The priests could go between lines relatively undisturbed. He saw that the priests were trained and equipped with radios. After the war, he returned to law and got involved with the Republican Party. He married, eventually having four children. He had a number of roles in the Nixon administration, under Secretary of Economic Affairs, Chairman of the SEC, and president of the Export-Import Bank of the United States. Casey's worldview was shaped by his experiences. He knew the power of the church, having been educated in fine Catholic institutions, and having been able to use the church in his time as an OSS officer. As a lawyer and specialist in taxes, he was wary of government control. In his time as Undersecretary of Economic Affairs, he demonstrated his support of the free market. As chairman of the SEC, he commented on his worry that business might be infiltrated by communists. 
Perhaps that last bit was a bit of paranoia, but nonetheless, he loved free enterprise and feared its destruction. All this, along with his experience, made him a perfect candidate for any number of positions in the Reagan administration. President Reagan appointed him director of the CIA and elevated the directorship to a cabinet position. Casey had wanted to be Secretary of State. As Reagan's master of whispers, he kept close contact with Pope John Paul II. The Catholic Church in Poland was very institutionalized and anti-communist. The Pope, being not only the Pope, but Polish, had some insights and influence in what was going on in Poland behind the Iron Curtain. Casey conducted secret meetings with the Pope, going to see him in cars with dark-tinted windows. The Pope and the Church is just an inkling of Casey's plans. What made Casey unique was how much he expanded support for anti-communist movements around the world. His experience in the OSS informed him of the great power of the priesthood, as well as any civic or religious organization, especially one that is institutionalized. The communist revolution was in itself the result of civic organization. He understood that communism couldn't be fought with just spycraft and force. It must be resisted with competing ideologies and organizations. So how does Casey get into our little Hall of Fame? Much of the answer lies in the groups he created to promote anti-communist ideologies, as well as the expansion of the CIA and parallel agencies. Ironic, considering his love of small government. Many of these are not controversial or where they already existed and he just supported their expansion. The NSA, National Security Agency, for example, was a favorite of Casey's, which he helped expand. This group could have its own podcast due to its long and controversial history of collecting signals intelligence. The NSA is basically the all-hearing ear of the U.S. government. Another was the National Reconnaissance Office, NRO, which designed and built reconnaissance satellites, which means the NRO is the all-seeing eye in the sky. Casey advocated for the Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI, or Star Wars, which fictional character Peggy Hill claims is what really defeated the Soviets. It was basically to be a missile defense shield. The world had been discussing reducing the number of nuclear warheads. If SDI were implemented, the Soviets' way to counter would be to make a large enough number of missiles to overwhelm the shield. It was seen as an affront to the Soviets and denuclearization. The CIA's Mission Center for Counterterrorism began in 1986 under Casey's guidance. Terrorism knows no borders, so Casey thought it wise to have an office that could look at the problem globally and not just with nation teams. It is also logical to suppose it was created in part as a response to the bombing of the U.S. Embassy in Beirut. The group has a tarnished history. From the get-go, they got involved in the Iran-Contra affair. Perhaps his most shady action was directing CIA funds to private organizations for reasons that might have been more partisan political than based on foreign intelligence gathering. He used CIA funds to support the National Endowment for the Preservation of Liberty, NEPL, 
This was a private group meant to counter what they saw as liberal bias in the media. They published magazines and gave grants to conservative scholars, amongst other things. Casey loved to support anti-communist rebels. He supported them with and without transparency. The CIA funded rebels from Afghanistan to Angola. He also created a secret fund arming and training anti-communist rebels, especially in Central America. The secret fund and operations around it were largely considered a violation of governmental checks and balances. This is 8th grade civics. The legislative branch makes laws and a budget, and the executive enforces those laws under the guidance of the budget. Casey was appointed by the executive, the president, as the director of the CIA, which is again an executive office. Since Congress made no provision for such actions within the budget, and Casey never informed them of the fund, he arguably overstepped his executive mandate, violating the principle of checks and balances. Of course, directors, given budgets, have some leeway in how the money is allocated. Congress isn't authorizing a specific number of pencils for the Langley office. They get a budget for office supplies. But operating a clandestine system of training and arming rebels probably deserves its own line item in the budget, though. The most interesting arming of foreign rebels was the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. What of their origins? The Afghan government from 1978 through most of the 1980s was controlled by a single left-wing party called the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan. Their platform was gender equality, universal education, and de-Islamification. These ideas didn't sit well with large parts of the population, and the government used a heavy hand to stay in power. This included mass executions of clerics and others against the regime. This Democratic Republic of Afghanistan was friendly with the Soviet Union. When it looked like the government was in danger, the Soviets sent in troops to keep their ally or friend in power. The Soviets found themselves at war with religious soldiers called Mahujadin. Pakistan was at odds with the Afghan government. Refugees poured across their borders, destabilizing the country, and they feared the war may spread. President Carter thought it wise to support these Mahujadin fighters and what is now known as Operation Cyclone. Casey didn't start Operation Cyclone, but he sure did love it. Casey secretly visited Pakistan and Mahujadin leaders. Reporter Steve Cole wrote, Casey startled his Pakistani host by proposing that they take the Afghan war into enemy territory and to the Soviet Union itself. Casey wanted to ship subversive propaganda through Afghanistan to the Soviet Union's predominantly Muslim southern republics. The Pakistanis agreed, and the CIA soon supplied thousands of Qurans, as well as books on Soviet atrocities in Uzbekistan, and tracks on historical heroes of Uzbek nationalism. Remember, present-day Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Turkmenistan were part of the Soviet Union at that time, and all border Afghanistan. Under Casey's watch, Afghan rebels received Stinger missiles. Though not necessarily his idea to give them, his agency was capable of delivering them. And we'll circle back to funding rebels 
and the latter part of his career, but for now, let's learn about his early days as director and some failures. April 18, 1983, a suicide bomber in Beirut, Lebanon, drove a truck full of explosives into the U.S. Embassy. Dozens were killed. The CIA's investigation determined the attack was done by Hezbollah. Hezbollah disapproved of the U.S.'s support of the Lebanese government, which Hezbollah thought of as being in league with Israel. Hezbollah itself was and is funded by Iran. The Reagan and Casey response was to get tougher on Iran. However, senior officials later became involved in selling weapons to Iran, but more on that later. The CIA also increased clandestine activities targeting Hezbollah worldwide. Another possible intelligence failure occurred September 1st, 1983, when Korean Airlines Flight 007 was shot down. On its path from Anchorage, Alaska to Tokyo, it drifted into Soviet airspace. The Soviets shot it down. Unfairly or not, Casey was criticized for not being aware of military activity in the area or providing information that could have prevented the incident. In response to this incident, the Reagan administration gave airlines access to the government's global positioning system, GPS. With GPS on planes, such accidents could be avoided. A couple of decades later, we all have that access on our phones. The stress of the position, and likely these events, took its toll. In 1984, Casey suffered a stroke that left him partially paralyzed and unable to speak for several months. Yet, he returned to work as CIA director. During his tenure, there were also some interesting cases of spycraft. Not long after Casey's stroke, in 1985, Oleg Gorievsky, a KGB officer, well, double agent really, working for British intelligence, was outed by CIA agent and double agent really working for the KGB, Osric Ames. This was a huge loss and almost resulted in the death of Gordievsky. A mole hunt was started under Casey's tenure, but Ames wasn't discovered until 1983. Ames's treason resulted in the deaths of many CIA assets. He is presently serving life in prison. The curious case of Vitaly Yurchenko also played out in 1985. Yurchenko was a KGB agent who defected to the CIA and then redefected back to the Soviet Union. That he was able to return is an embarrassment to the CIA. Even today, it's unclear if Yurchenko's original defection was genuine or if he had some sort of change of heart. He was treated like a hero upon his return, receiving the Order of the Red Star. One theory is he was a KGB tool to distract the CIA from Ames's actions. Dmitry Polyakov was another asset lost due to Ames's actions. He was a major general in the GRU, which is Soviet military intelligence. Polyakov was retired at the time, but had spent 20 to 23 years as a CIA asset. He helped uncover KGB moles within British and U.S. state sectors. He provided insight into the diplomatic rift between the Soviet Union and China, and he provided technicals on Soviet anti-tank missiles. He didn't accept money. The CIA paid him about $3,000 a year in fishing equipment and tools. Ames outed his actions in 1986, 
and he was executed two years later. To wrap up Casey's career, we can circle back to his love of supporting rebels to a case that might, I emphasize, might have involved his slush fund. Casey was accused of having been involved in the Iran-Contra affair. Here's the short version of the Iran-Contra affair. Congress passed a law banning the arming and funding of the Nicaraguan rebels. Congress also had a weapons embargo in place against Iran, still in effect from the Carter administration. Iraq invaded Iran, and Iran needed American weapons. Reagan administration officials began selling arms to Iran and then sending the money to the rebels in Nicaragua. Though it appears to have been happening from the early days of the administration, the paper trail makes it look like it started in 1985, with the cat getting out of the bag in 1986. Casey was implicated. If guilty, he couldn't use any sort of budgeting discretion excuse. Arming the Nicaraguan rebels would have been a clear violation of checks and balances, not to mention a direct violation of federal law. He had two seizures the day before he was to testify before Congress on the matter. While Casey remained in the hospital, Richard Secord, a retired Air Force general involved in covert operations, implicated Casey. Having said that, Secord was found to have perjured himself regarding payments he received for his involvement in earlier weapons supply runs. Casey died about a day later. Veteran investigative journalist Bob Woodard claims to have had access to Casey in the hospital before his death, and when questioned about his involvement, Casey nodded affirmatively. However, a House investigation cleared him of wrongdoing, or at least failed to find evidence of it. In short, William Casey was a sober and devout man. He expanded the eyes and ears of the government. He used tax dollars to fund rebels, sometimes without congressional knowledge, and spent CIA funds on something like today's Cato Institute. During his tenure, Hezbollah attacked a U.S. embassy, the Soviets shot down a passenger jet, and Aldrich Ames ran amok, outing Western intelligence assets left and right. He was a man devoted to God, the Catholic Church, his family, the Republican Party, and perhaps most of all, his work. Even when his health was failing, as long as he could walk to his desk, he did. Only death could remove him from what he saw as his duty. I have a very special guest with us here today. She's on the line, Rebecca Mosharowski, a nurse and volunteer in Ukraine. All right, Miss um, Mosharowski, could you tell me a little bit about what we would call your origin story? Oh, um, so I am um, a nurse. I've been in the medical field for almost 12 years now, um, and I've worked overseas quite a bit in, uh, you know, low resource high acuity environments. Um, I'm also a big bleeding heart. So when I saw the news about the war, I wanted to help. I didn't want to kind of just sit there and, and be like, well, we should, someone should help. I wrote to the Ministry of Health and second week of March, they responded and said, and I said, you know, just a, an off chance here. I, I'm, <clears throat> I saw you uh, made a request for 
uh, foreign medical uh, volunteers for assistance. Would you would you like my assistance? I am a nurse. I sent them my credentials, and they said yes. Please come. So it's kind of the beginning, and then made my way into Ukraine. I started working with the soldiers. I originally uh, found a volunteer medic company called Hospitalis. All volunteer. They've been doing amazing work since 2014. Um, joined up with them. Went on some rotations with them, and then kind of went a scopade, not a scopade, but just went to assist the armed forces directly as a volunteer medic. Uh, so that entails working uh, evacuations, uh, helping the stabilization points. Uh, the other night, I actually went and worked a little bit at the hospital that I evacuate most of my patients to, doing medical trainings, and now has evolved into trying to help this, the troops directly with other needs, stuff like medical supply and medical trainings and that kind of stuff. So you so, belong to like a unit? So I didn't sign, I didn't sign a contract. What I did is I, if the Ukrainians want you to work with them, you'll, they'll, they'll let you know. So I've stayed as volunteer status, um, assisting a number of different, I think five different battalions now, uh, in various capacities, um, all with medical work. And uh, when those various battalions rotate to the rear. I stay and meet the new battalions coming in and then assist them. And sometimes remnants of, of my old battalion will remain. And so I've always had, you know, f friendly folks around and I'm the Ukrainian soldiers are very welcoming. The villagers are very welcoming. So yeah, I just, just kind of stayed. Hmm. All right. Well, that's a true volunteer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, and these people keep asking me, like, how did, like, how did you, like, I'm looking for this, I'm looking for this, I can't get a contract, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you just go and, and help, and they will ask you to stay, you know, but, but go and live with them and help them and, and do the daily work and, and, and be in that experience with them. Don't go and stay in Lviv and Kiev for a couple of weeks and then make a, you know, a weekly or, or bi-monthly trip out to the Donbass and record it all. And then, you know, people see that. The Ukrainians see that and they feel like it's um, what do you call it? Fine, good weather help, fair uh, weather fair, help, fair, fair weather. Soldiers. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's much more satisfying to be in there and you know help the people directly. Well, I mean, I, I my question then is who should come? Like, if somebody really wanted to be there and help, uh, what should their qualifications be? You know, like it's like, well, I've got you know ten fingers, ten toes. Uh, I know a little bit about construction and I wanted to help. Would it be a good idea for me to show up at the front and, you know, like, Hey guys, no, what you need? no. Um, so for me, this has been a long process of uh, kind of embedding, learning, uh, the language, learning to communicate. If you can't even read a road sign in Ukraine, how are you going to get to where you're going? You know, now if, you know, qualified medical professionals that hopefully are bilingual or willing to source their own translator, wants to come and help um, and have found a reputable hospital uh, to come and assist in. Absolutely. But please don't just come up and show up at the front line because then you are a liability and you're one extra person that they have to now worry about and watch over. And they've got their hands full already. If you understand what I'm saying? Right. Right. But support those that are already there and, 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 and already assisting and have been and stayed because we, we need all the help we can get to, to, to be able to stay here. And, and what is that particular type of help that people need to stay? Uh, well, it depends on who it is. For me, 
I need not just random donations, but I need things that are specifically requested. Like I mentioned before, like IFAX is a huge thing. Explain and if is. I can, it is a personal, a personal first aid kit. It has things like tourniquet and clotting gauze, which you can, as a soldier, you need. If you're wounded, you can you can apply this to yourself or the soldiers next to you. It can essentially keep you alive. In the U.S., every soldier is issued one and goes through uh, TCCC, tactical med- medical uh, training courses before deploying. There is no systemic or organized way of training or issuing a IFAX here because it is largely volunteer soldiers and this is an ongoing active conflict. But, yeah, specific... Specific needs, like, and ask the people on the ground, what what do you need? What is, because the needs sometimes change. Generators, for instance, are always needed, but not to everyone. Some areas are able to get generators, um, and some areas are not able to pass that request out. So be in contact with those on the ground asking, what are your current needs? What are the soldiers' current needs? What is the best way to contact those people? On the ground. <laughs> That's, that's that's a tricky subject because there's a lot of people that uh, might 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 say they're in one place and might uh, be a, be in another. I I think that that's such a tricky question, Brennan. I I don't know how to answer that diplomatically. Okay, well, so so probably the best thing is to try to find a middle person we do trust. Like, you know, yes. I, I I I you know trust you. I've seen you. I've seen video of where you're at. But, you know, other people might not have that luxury. And then talking to anybody else, of course, there's fear that, that there could be some scammers out there. And we don't all have time to really vet everyone entirely in our lives. And that's kind of a, uh, you know, we also don't want people to. It's hard. Yeah. Uh, so why do you know of any like middle organizations? Yes. And I will, uh, I will send you a link. There's uh, a Swedish organization that has been very, very helpful to me and actually came to my location and delivered supplies. Ukraine Aid Ops is also one that came to my location, delivered supplies. Uh, Brandon Mitchell, who has come and assisted me, um, he is a pretty well-known figure over here, but is really, truly living, breathing, assisting at every turn. Uh, he's someone I know and trust. What was his name again? Um, Brandon Mitchell. Oh, another Brandon. All right. Yeah. And he uh, has actually been, been injured in the war and oh. continued to stay and help. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know I donate to Ukraine aid ops, and I like to get on their Amazon and send stuff to them directly. Too oh, that's sometimes. and that's wonderful. Yeah. Yes, they have also assisted me. Now, vehicles always, always, always needed in Ukraine. If you can find a way. This is a good, good, good uh, people that want to volunteer to say, uh, you know, I have a time if, if they want to volunteer. There are some good organizations that help uh, and need volunteers to drive vehicles across the border. That is always needed. Oh, OK. Well, I might have some summer plans there. <laughs> there you go. Oh, God, that would that would be cool. Well, I, yeah, one of the, the groups I work with, um, UK Mission. Ah, I think that's what we call them. They just recently did their official status. But when I was in Krakow last summer doing doing a little volunteer work, and it was—I mean, it was—it was probably a little more vacation than volunteering. But you know, in case anyone ever in, investigates, but I was there doing volunteer. No, work I would and, never, Joe. Yeah, but um, 
the we met these we were we were at one of the like refugee centers and these like british fellas showed up in a van and just unloading some stuff and they were going to sleep in their van and my wife and i we had rented out an apartment and so we just had oh yeah like come on stay with us that's amazing get a a shower and we because you know they would have stayed in their van oh that's awesome yeah yeah so we're like yeah that's really heartwarming And I'm still in contact with them and they still do runs and they're raising money right now. They got like um, a fire truck. I can't remember if it's a fire truck wow. or an ambulance. And they're trying to get it. They're trying to get it into Ukraine. They need um, basically like transportation money to get it there. But um, I'll, I'll put a link in about that if people want to donate to it. But yeah, yeah. So they, they were anyway, you were talking about drivers. They're one of the driving group and they did kind of what what you're doing in a sense is they just were like this is a horrible situation and i think you know we've we've spoken before and i mentioned that one of my favorite quotes is the mr rogers you know look to the helpers you know in times of crisis when it's scary look to the helpers and you know meet talk to people like you and meet meet people like that it gives me hope yeah no 100% gives me hope <laughs> it gives me hope what, um, with that in mind, like, what have you seen that does give you hope specifically? I think the the resilience of the Ukrainians is just something I witness every day, and it keeps me going, keeps me motivated. They're truly unstoppable and have endured all kinds of challenges and tribulations and continue to persevere. That is just to me so incredible, so incredible. Um. Just really, really, really remarkable people. I feel honored to be here. Oh, yeah. I feel honored to be here. What What do you want the world to know? I just don't want them to forget what's going on here. It feels like um, the headlines are largely about other things. Um, but this is an ongoing conflict. Every single day, people here are dealing with this and dealing with attacks and deaths and their homes and lives being destroyed and it's easy to forget that's happening when you're in another country but we can't when we forget that's the first sign that uh, we're becoming complacent we need to stay vigilant we need to keep talking about what's happening here let's keep remembering it yeah the attention span of society can be rather short and we can move to the next crisis and uh... yes so well that you might have answered my next question if people don't have money to donate, how can they help? Talk about talk about it. Uh, speak about Ukraine. Remind people what's happening. Um, encourage those that are there. Maybe host a, a refugee family in your house. There are always ways that you can you can help. But I would say predominantly, don't let people forget what's happening. Right. We can't. We can't let them forget. With that in mind, um, what is, I mean, kind of taking the the questions to kind of a dark place, but like, what is the most unfortunate thing you've seen? That's hard um, to answer. I think you you see these really horrible stuff kind of on a daily basis. And and there's, it's not really something that you want to share or speak about, but I would say the, I would say as a whole, yeah, no, as a whole, um, the the civilian the slaughter of civilians is always difficult you know you expect you expect the soldiers um but it's always hard when it's civilians uh, who are dying 
that's always that's rough. Do you believe that the civilian deaths are collateral damage? I mean, that's you know kind of a term that gets thrown around, but generally meaning like truly accidents, or do you does it appear to be more targeted? In my opinion, I mean, why target? residential buildings i've seen barns destroyed like places where there's clearly no military presence this is clearly a residential population clearly marked vehicles and and the attacks continue so i no i don't i don't think that it's like the fallout i i think that it's it's and it terrorizes people right 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 so if you, like there can't be so many accidents do you understand what i'm saying like there is no way that these are all of these attacks are accidents like like even statistically on a mathematical level like there's no freaking way right right yeah it's like uh how many uh how could you hit a civilian building two times in a row or 45 minutes yes. right after you hit it the first time right about the time all the exactly medical personnel would be there yeah yes how many people are staying like uh, my understanding is you're you're fairly close to the front i don't want to get into details on that but you would be in an area. The people that have evacuated, yeah, usually have the resources to do so and have done so a while ago. Uh, many people are left. This is their home. This is their life. This is all they know. And there's a famous saying, I was born here. I will die here. Yeah. Sadly, um, I've had some instances where I've managed to convince some, some villagers to leave. I've come to collect them and they've changed their minds and then mm. multiple times have, have been, been killed. That's terrible. That's terrible. But they have, you know, some of them have uh, animals and, and a farm and they don't know anything else. They can't just have the time and money to jet off to, to a nice city. And, and this is their whole life they're leaving. So I would be, I I'm always say, refrain from casting judgment because this is, this is a highly personal thing for them. So with that, in, well, that, that makes me think there are a lot of... Um... Ukrainians that remained in the occupied territories. Perhaps they did have the chance to get out at certain points. Of course, there's also if people are shooting at you while you're leaving, you're inclined to stay. Yes. Yeah, that's like my question is like how much of that were people staying because they were afraid to leave and how much of it was, look, uh, this is my home. I don't I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't I can't tell you. I um I couldn't answer. That's a, that's something you'd have to ask them, you know. And that's a very it good. Probably answer. really depends. Yeah. I don't want to speculate. My next question is kind of tongue in cheek, um, because you know we're recording this for a podcast that follows the CIA. So I have to ask, how many CIA agents have you met? Zero. In fact, I'm uh, many times the first American that some of these soldiers have met. So you know, there's a lot of people that are claiming to be on the front line. And, you know, it's uncanny when you are meeting the soldiers and you ask, you know, have you met any other foreigners, any other Americans? And they say, no, you're the first. So <laughs> I just let the numbers speak for themselves. Right. No right. CIA. I wish, I, I, I wish uh, we could get some assistance. That would be great. Uh, particularly even if it's just in the form of protective equipment against chemical attacks. That would be awesome. That's a non-lethal aid that they could assist. Do you have a brand? That would be one thing. Uh, do you have a brand or model of um, gas mask that could be purchased online and then sent to Ukraine aid ops or some of these drivers or something? Yes. 
and I can send that to you directly. Okay. Uh, but they need to be a good quality because the masks that are issued, as you can very well imagine, are by no means recently made or um, an upgraded model, so to say. They are quite original. I've seen the videos. I don't know exactly how true it is of some older. I'll Russian send you. I, I'll send you the tip. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's a kind of both sides lack of resources. So, yeah, that's an area that I'm seeking to improve, ho- hopefully getting guys the protective equipment they need. But, yeah, it's a, it's a process. So the protective- a lot of people will message me and ask about the gas attacks and what information and whatnot, but but don't really have anything to offer. And I'm like, I'm not an intelligence sort. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I get that you want to hear the gory details and, and hear about mass casualty events, but I really want to know, do you have, like, do you, can you help? If not, like, there is no, right. I, I'm not here. I don't have the time or the bandwidth to sit down and tell you the story over and over. Right. I'm or busy. Yeah. try <laughs> to, tr- well, try to, try to prove to you it's happening. Like, that's not what I'm here for. It is happening. Uh, and, and chemical attacks have been happening. And, if you were here on the ground, you'd know that, but you're not. So you can speculate all you want. And I, that kind of sounds very abrupt, but that's kind of where I'm at. It's where I'm not like, people just want to be like, Oh, well, I talked to someone who said that they're, you know, using chloropin and now they're using something else. Like, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be your little Intel source, either help or don't. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Right. No, I totally understand. Yeah. You've, you're, you're busy. I don't know what social media followers you have or how many friends you got, but even your circle of friends, if every one of them messages you, it's like, oh, well, crap, I can't send 30 different people a message about this. You know, I've got people to treat and deal with. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. And I have limited mental bandwidth as well. I I might get some service on my phone and have maybe 60 messages. Uh, And then I've got to go through and and some, you know, some are from Ukrainians needing something. Some of them are from context wanting to hear a story. It's some, it's just, it's, it's exhausting. It's exhausting, especially when you're in the moment, just trying to, trying to give aid uh, without even worrying about communications. Yeah. With that in mind, what's important is people, if you got got questions online, if you're in like the Twitter or Facebook um, verse, for every question you ask, you should be donating something <laughs> and you should be doing your best. Like, why are you asking if you're not going to do anything about it? Right. No, like, you're just like, it's, it's not at this point, it's like, not like just a fun story. Like these are people's lives and, and, and we have to keep that in mind. Like these are people's lives. You're asking about casualties and, and this and that these are people's lives. So, you know, shit or get off the pot essentially. Yeah. A lot of this equipment can be bought for the price of, you know, going to McDonald's. It's not everything, but a lot of things. And, of course, things add up. Sea locks. And I, yeah, exactly. Chest seals. We're, we're low on chest shears. We, we need those. We always need IFAC items. I, if, you, if people want to donate these items, they can, uh, you know, message me directly. Ask for my Novus Posta. I will give that out. It's in a relatively safe town that I'm sometimes able to drive to, as you know, um, or, or send someone to. So if, if you, you know, have these items and you want to um, want to send them now, you can. might take a while. If you want to send money and I uh, buy them directly, that works too. It's whatever people, whatever people feel comfortable with. But please don't just ask questions. Like, we, we need help. We need help. 
Well, um, you can say if you like how someone can send you money. Okay, I have um, PayPal and I have buy me a coffee, and um, so uh, I won't give details, but we you know, did undergo a targeted missile attack, and um, there was my car windshield was a casualty, sadly, as as well as my cat, which oh. was horrible. Yeah, um, but uh, I had put something on Twitter, and I was hesitant to ask because I. I don't like to be that person, but I was like, hey, you know, it's hard to drive, uh, see through the windshield, especially since I've had to tape it up and little bits of glass are flying in and I can't see at night. Could some people help me with getting a new one? And people did help. In fact, uh, I was able to raise, I think at this point is uh, $5,000, oh, cool. but I, I didn't want to just like pocket that. So I, then I, my next post was, okay, guys, uh, you know, I've definitely able to buy a new windshield. Would you guys mind if I use this money for gas masks because uh, i didn't want people to think like that their money would go to waste so i want to tell them directly this is how you can help and people were down with that which was awesome yeah so that is just an example of of how you can help and, so and what, i hate being that god well i mean yeah i mean i understand where like your your next worry is people are going to start accusing me of being a scammer and here i am like i actually don't worry no, I actually don't worry about that at all because if, if you come here and you meet any Ukrainian who's ever worked with me, met me, uh, you'll know immediately that I'm not a scammer. Um, and I'm also, yeah, I, I don't worry about that. <laughs> like that, no, I, that's not my concern. Like you, I am, I've been here, I've, I'm staying here and every day I'm working and there's, yeah, there's re really quite a clear paper trail there. <laughs> But sometimes people can get a little bit um, sensitive, social media sensitive to accusations. So it's nice to hear. You I don't, doesn't, no, doesn't I don't care. You. Like uh, if, if you, I, and I haven't, that's not something I've really encountered um, in my direction at all. I've kept, just worked really directly with the Ukrainian people. And um, so I, I think they love me. They, <laughs> I, they do love me. I love them. Uh, so you know, any, any hearsay out there that might occur hasn't happened so far, but you know, that's okay. Um, they're not here. And if they want to come see for themselves, they're welcome to join me. Yeah. And, uh, come get a little, come get a little taste, but please bring a gas mask and maybe some chest seals. <laughs> so if people, <laughs> if people do send you money, you have the ability to like buy this equipment. It's like the equipment can be had. I do. Well, can be brought in. It's just, my my problem is sourcing it um and i have a who's turned into a good friend someone that has a reliable internet connection it's very supportive but he uh like yesterday i said here's the amount of money i raised can you help me find some gas masks to buy so he said about seeing if he could find some in ukraine that i could buy that could come novus post directly to me i don't have the time a lot of times to find the stuff but i have i know what the need is and i have a trusted friend who can help me arrange, you can do the logistical side of things. So absolutely, yes. I really appreciate your time talking to me and, and talking to the listeners. And thank you for what you do and your sacrifice and you know the heartache and time and putting your life in danger and you know just even representing the well representing the United States in a sense and just well, representing humanity and the best of humanity. So thank you for that. No, I'm honored to be here. We'll, we'll try to keep the, 
uh, keep the information around, like you mentioned. Like we gotta, we don't want this to to disappear from the news cycle. So hopefully this will help. Yes, hopefully. If you are interested in helping Miss Masharowski, you can donate to her using PayPal at b e c h e n d r y at gmail dot com. You may also donate via buy me a coffee dot com backslash b e k a m a c i o r o w s k i after the interview she informed me that the gas masks that they most need are the m50 joint services general purpose mask the mestel safety sge 400 gas mask the mestel safety multi-purpose filter 203 they are also in need of chest vents chest seals chest shears IFAX, individual first aid kits, oxygen tanks, and oxygen compressors. During this broadcast, we spoke of a number of groups and organizations. I have personally met and worked with Ukraine Mission, which you can reach them via their website, ukrainemission.co.uk. I donate frequently to Ukraine Aid Ops. Dot .org and I have worked with Team Krakow. They have a donation page at zrzutka.pl backslash en backslash vpvrv6. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. If you support independent media, subscribe, like, and share. Reviews and interactions help us greatly, so please leave a comment or suggestion. Tell us who you want us to profile next. You can find us on all major podcast platforms. Visit our site at ciafiles.net. From there, you can easily add us to your socials, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and buy some of that sweet CIA Files swag.